Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 72nd episode of our podcast, I interviewed Tom Eisenman, professor at Harvard Business School. Quick question for you. What do the companies Rent the Runway, Birchbox, ThreadUp, Cloudflare, Evertrue, and Insight Squared all have in common? Well, they are all companies that you may have heard of, but did you know that they all participated in Harvard Business School's new venture competition? It's true, and this is just a small sampling of the amazing companies from this competition. Sure, careers in management consulting and investment banking are still commonly considered by B-School grads, but it's the path of entrepreneurship that has been one of the fastest growing areas of interest for students. Thus, I was really excited to interview Tom and get an inside look at entrepreneurship at HBS. Tom has over 20 years of experience as a faculty member, and he's also the faculty co-chair of the HBS Rock Center for Entrepreneurship, which supports these students who are looking to transform their ideas into successful startups and even perhaps change the world. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like ABC's Shark Tank and how so many HBS affiliated companies have appeared on the show, Tom's background and what led him down the path of academia, how HBS has evolved over time as it relates to entrepreneurship and its curriculum, including their case method approach, the common mistakes where entrepreneurs get tripped up, Tom's thoughts on whether or not entrepreneurship is a trait someone is born with or is it something that can be taught, advice on how to get into Harvard Business School, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. If you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. We have lots of great interviews coming up, and by subscribing, you won't miss future episodes. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Tom. Tom, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. All right, so it seems like every time I watch ABC's Shark Tank, there's an alum from Harvard Business School that is pitching to the judges. So I was wondering, I'm like, are you guys now offering a course that's focused on perfecting the pitch for Shark Tank? Because so many of these companies are, are HBS affiliated. No, yeah, there's a lot of them and it's always a great surprise. I, I watch the show uh, almost every week and, uh, and I see the same thing and, and it's uh, super exciting to see these teams that I've worked closely with on TV like that. I wish we had taught them to pitch that well. Um, they, uh, <laughs> they do an amazing they get, job. They get some of it here, but I got to say, um, uh, the accelerators in particular, sort of the tech stars and Y combinators of the world are, are the places where entrepreneurs really can learn to pitch. Um, we help them figure out if they've got a good business idea and, and take it forward, but the pitching skill is really crucial. You know, you know um, when Shark Tank first came on, I, I actually had a colleague who wanted to bring the producers into class to talk about the program and and maybe do some Shark Tank live in the classroom, and I told him, uh, "Don't you dare!" Um, <laughs> I think that show is horrible. Um, I think it's all about these uh, wicked angels uh, beating up these poor entrepreneurs, and and that the show early on had way too much emphasis on um, on the angels getting a great deal from the entrepreneurs. Uh, that's actually either I've gotten used to that or it's changed a lot over time. I think the emphasis has shifted in the last several years. To the um, to the sharks trying to figure out is this a good opportunity what where's the upside what are the challenges and so forth so I think it's fantastic now and, and um, has done a, a huge uh, a huge amount to to um, boost interest in entrepreneurship in the general public um, and yeah we're really proud of those teams there's a bunch of them uh, just last week I saw the episode with Bali X which has an HBS alumni co-founder. Uh, Love Pop, Surprise Ride, Plated, uh, Coffee Meets Bagel. It's a, it's a long list of our teams that have have uh, have gone on. Uh, some of them have even raised some money. 
It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it seems like every time I turn on uh, Shark Tank and they do a recap episode, you're always going to see Love Pop, Wombie, and John. Like, they're always like repeat, repeat, which is amazing. Uh, yeah, and what, what, what really sold me on the show as an experience for our entrepreneurs is, is I'm, I'm, I've uh, had Wombie as a student over the years, and, uh, and he speaks privately, incredibly highly of that experience, the value he's got from it, how much he's learned, and you know, how cool it's been to Love Pop. So, uh, with his endorsement, I'm all for it now. Well, let's go way back. So where, where did you grow up? And I always like to ask questions like, what did your parents do for work? Uh, so I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, my dad was, I suppose, uh, uh, by a lot of definitions, an entrepreneur. Um, he was a self-employed television repairman. Um, and so he had that shop, which he started. And then uh, uh, he had a tropical fish store. So it was um, a pretty cool, and, and both of those, uh, we, we live in an apartment building, uh, the two shops were downstairs. So uh, I was either constantly, you know, up, up, up to my elbows um, in a fish tank uh, or playing around with the, um, this, these are the days uh, when you needed a TV repairman because they had all the vacuum tubes inside. So a uh, TV repairman's job was to sort of process of elimination, figure out which tube was burned out. Very interesting. Okay. And then what led you down the path of ultimately studying at Harvard? Well, um, so, you know, you asked if um, um, whether, you know, we might wonder whether entrepreneurship is, uh, is uh, genetically predisposed. Um, academics, the same thing. Um, I, I actually have two siblings who are professors and um, I don't know where that came from. Um, but uh, so, so it's in the family genes. I guess in college, you know, I was um, um, at Harvard College studying the economics of third world agriculture and just loved and got deeper and deeper in, went, um, actually spent a year as an undergrad at Stanford where they had more courses on this topic, doing graduate level work and, and just got pulled in and fascinated with doing research. So um, as an undergrad, thought pretty hard about sticking around and doing a PhD at that time and uh, went down a business path for many years instead. But uh, at two or three year intervals, just kept asking, is it time? Is it time? And uh, finally hit the eject button at age 37, which I figured was about as old as you could be and, and sort of uh, leave, uh, leave the McKinsey partners office and, and sort of strap on a backpack and go sit in the library for a few years. Because that was your, your background, like you were mm -hmm. strategy consulting at Booz, then McKinsey and... Yep. You, know, you were one of the, the heads of their media practice, right? That's right. Yeah. And I had a ball doing that, but um, always knew that, that, um, that I wanted to do the academic thing. One of the uh, pro bono projects I actually did when I was at McKinsey was uh, for the dean, then Dean MacArthur, John MacArthur of, of Harvard Business School. He brought in McKinsey to ask the question, where would he get the next generation of faculty? Um, you know, if you go back... Um, decades, a, a pretty good chunk of, of the Harvard Business School faculty would look like me. They'd have gone through the MBA program and then gotten recruited into the doctoral programs. And uh, once uh, consulting and investment banking and private equity got rolling, that path was much more rare. So, um, so MacArthur wanted to know where we're going to get the next generation of, of faculty. And I interviewed in the context of that project, a third of the faculty saw all the skeletons in the closets, all the upside and downside of the career and still wanted to do it. So that was... Uh, that was proof it was a good idea for me. So then you landed in academia and mm -hmm. obviously got your PhD. Um, so w what happens next? Like what, like kind of like, do you just start teaching? Like, like, and, and then you start teaching entrepreneurship. So how did that all come together? Yeah, it's a pretty, um, uh, so, so as you said at McKinsey, I was co-head of the media and entertainment practice. And, uh, 
uh, that was, I, I left there in 94. So that was the, that was, uh, the days of the information superhighway. <laughs> and what was going on then um, was a big blur um, between um, media, telecom, and electronics. So um, in those days, my counterparts from the electronics practice and the telecom practice, we'd head off as a group um, and uh, uh, every week sort of descend on some big electronics company or some telco or some, some big uh, media conglomerate and talk to them about where things were going and share our views and, and, and so forth. Um, so I really had that bug uh, in the mid-90s. Um, I, I did my, my thesis was, um, my doctoral uh, dissertation was on the consolidation of the U.S. cable industry. Mm. And I thought I was still studying the kind of big companies uh, that I had worked with at McKinsey as a consultant, because by then these cable operators were pretty big. The question was, um, what, uh, how did some companies sell in the mid-90s when things started to get really turbulent with fiber and, and regulation and phone companies coming and, and so forth? Um, interactivity and um, some double down like Comcast just kept getting bigger and bigger um, and uh, uh, turned out from uh, as an academic uh, the interesting question was who bears the risk of, of doubling down and it turned out that what I called owner managers were more much more inclined to do that than, than companies where you had a hired manager and of course owner manager is another uh, name for an entrepreneur I didn't realize it but I was studying in my dissertation entrepreneurship when I joined the faculty after finishing that work in 97, I pretty quickly found my way to the entrepreneurial management unit and uh, realized that what I'd been studying was, uh, was this rare breed that had built these amazing cable companies. Well, so if you look at the history of um, entrepreneurship at Harvard Business School, I would imagine there's this, been this massive transformation, right? From the time that you were just referring to, to now, where you know, I, I would imagine there was a history where investment banking and strategy consulting was the overwhelming majority of students. And I'm sure that's a incredibly viable career path that a lot of students still pursue, but yep. what's the vibe on campus now as it relates to entrepreneurship? Um, I, you know, it's been a steady and, and a steady increase in interest. I'd, I'd characterize maybe a third of the student body now um, of the MBAs at Harvard Business School as having a strong interest in tech or entrepreneurship or tech entrepreneurship. Um, and that's, uh, that's probably double what it was when I joined the faculty. You know, there's always been some of that. Um, and and uh, so I joined in 97. You know, we pretty quickly were in the throes of the, of the dot-com boom. And, and there was a lot of interest in entrepreneurship then. Uh, faded a bit, uh, in, quite a bit in 2000, 2001. But then it's been steadily building. And, and, and what I'd say is um, it's been building in really healthy ways. You know, there, there was a lot of, of um, lemming-like herd behavior back in 99 and 2000. People doing it just because, um, it, you know, it was obviously the, that uh, the internet was new and amazing um, and, and it was something you had to try. The, the students who are interested now, uh, by and large, really know what they're getting into. A pretty large fraction of them that want to be entrepreneurs um, have actually had an experience in a startup be, before grad school. And uh, so, so they know what they're getting into. They know it's hard work. They know the odds of failure are pretty high. And, and I would say um, they come better equipped in that regard. And then they get uh, a far better grounding here in terms of uh, building the skills and learning the concepts that it takes to, to succeed as an early stage entrepreneur. So, so in some ways, it's way healthier than this sort of um, 
breathless surge of, of interest we had in the dot-com boom. I mean, we're, we're I think, um, uh, training um, really well-equipped entrepreneurs these days and who know what they're getting into. And Harvard Business School is known for its case method approach. So what, what does that mean? And what does that, you know, what, how does that differentiate uh, and what it provides for the students? Yeah, so um, many, probably uh, most of our courses are built around case methods. Um, students will read a, um, a, a case study of a business, um, a typically uh, uh, 12 pages long with a bunch of exhibits. And... Um, invariably the managers at the company, the senior leadership is wrestling with some choice. And so the students have read that, they all come in and um, uh, the most interesting cases are ones where the answer isn't obvious. If it's obvious, uh, you know, what are you gonna spend 80 minutes talking about? So um, as an example, um, ThreadUp is a uh, San Francisco based startup. They do, um, they're the leading um, online retailer of secondhand apparel. So they James Reinhardt. Yeah, James Reinhardt, exactly. Got started here in, in, he, in, uh, in he used to, I have some guest blog content on Venture Fizz from him. Yeah, no, <laughs> um, fantastic entrepreneur. So, so James was a student. Um, great story of, of the pivot they took from James. James's original idea was um, uh, he wanted to do peer-to-peer -peer swapping of, of um, men's shirts. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. um, you'd have a bunch of hipster males. And, you know, I said, James, you know, maybe there are 10,000 people on the planet that want to do that. They probably all live in Williamsburg. Um, and, you know, so right. I, I, don't, I don't see it, man. I don't know what you're doing this for. Um, and uh, that was actually a pretty good lesson because that, in fact, turned out to be the case. There were not many customers for that. But in the course of building that business, James found that some families were um, using the peer-to-peer -peer swapping to trade children's clothing. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that took off like a rocket. And then from there, it was a, a pretty natural extension to, they're mostly female, women's um, apparel now. So uh, it taught me a lesson that you got to be careful about how quickly you tell an entrepreneur that he or she's got a bad idea. <laughs> um, but I, I got a case now, as, as an example of the case method, on um, ThreadUp figuring out whether to go into Europe. So, um, you know, they've got a, a, a big market share in the U.S. and Europe is two or three years behind the U.S., a lot of venture capital pouring in. And the question for them is, um, do they go? You know, if they, if they don't go now, will they miss an opportunity? Will some other player there essentially um, capture the opportunity that's similar to what they did in the U.S.? And if you go, um, do you build your own thing, which they know how to do? Do you buy somebody that's got some traction? Exactly what do you do? And, um, you know, there's, naturally, there's lots of opportunity and challenges in the U.S. business. So, you know, to spread your attention over both of those things is, and, and the capital that it would require to, to sort of move into Europe is a tricky question. So uh, students can learn a ton from, um, from wrestling with problems like that. They'll split right down the middle on whether it's a good idea um, and, uh, and learn a lot from listening to classmates. So what factors did you, you know, you're for it, I'm against it you listen pretty carefully to the person um, who's, who's on the other side and how, how they uh, took, looked at the same facts and came to a different conclusion than you. And then um, in our entrepreneurship classes, a lot of classes at Harvard Business School, we'll typically bring the entrepreneurs in. So, so James will always fly in when we teach this case and he'll talk about what they did and, and, and uh, what he learned from the process and so forth. So that's a fantastic, uh, the case method, fantastic for pattern matching for, for uh, aspiring entrepreneurs. You know, they'll see how to price the software product, you know, when do you raise the next round? Um, uh, I got a co-founder that I'm not getting along with. What do I do about that? And if, if you read about these cases, um, when you hit the, 
that problem in the real world, you're, you're, you're better equipped. So it, I mean, it's, it's, so that's the key, right? These are real world problems. These aren't just textbook and, you know, it just, and so what did thread up end up doing then as what, what did Jane? Uh, uh, um, a pretty slow move. They, they, they tiptoed in, um, basically uh, would ship some stuff from the U.S., but it wasn't a big push. They, didn't, they did not acquire one of the European players. And, uh, you know, so it was, uh, I, I would say they kept their options open, but, but didn't go uh, full throttle. Got it. Okay. Now, how has curriculum evolved over the years, you know, to kind of teach this, you know, company building and entrepreneurial, uh, you know, curriculum? Yeah. So, um, you know, if you go back 20 years, there would be only a handful of courses. Um, Bill Solomon, um, one of our s senior professors here, 30 years ago, built a course um, called Entrepreneurial Finance, which is just what it sounds like. And uh, for many years, we had a venture capital and private equity course. So entrepreneurial finance was from the entrepreneur's perspective. VCPE was from the, um, from the investor's perspective and uh, a few others. But um, we've been steadily adding um, case-based courses uh, as well as uh, what I call project-based courses or learning by doing courses. And, uh, and we got a pretty, um, you know, I, I guess depending on how you count, uh, what you count as, as entrepreneurship, it's probably 20 or 30 courses out of 100 MBA electives at this point that touch on some aspect of, of technology or innovation. Um, big move was in the year 2000. Um, for, for many, many years, it had always been um, the, the first year of the, M the MBA program here is a two-year program, and the first year is entirely a required curriculum. Um, so no, no options. You take marketing, you take accounting, you take finance, and so forth. So in 2000, one of those courses became entrepreneurship. So we've had a case-based introduction to entrepreneurship, and that's great because um, all, all 900 uh, first-year MBAs now are exposed. And what we find is that people who never thought of themselves as potential entrepreneurs catch the bug through that course. You know, they hear these stories, they see people do it, they think, hey, that looks really interesting. I think I could do that. Um, and, uh, and then uh, they've got plenty of time left in the MBA program to sort of test drive an idea and, and get started. So having the first year course made a big difference. And then we've added um, a whole series of electives over the last five or 10 years. Um, um, Jeff Buskang is leading a course now called Launching Technology Ventures, which is what it sounds like, early stage challenges. Um, Jeffrey Rayport leads a course called Scaling Technology Ventures. So you've got product market fit, um, you're, you're off to the races, you've raised money, you've built a team, you know, now how do you keep the wheels from coming off as you, as you grow faster and faster? Uh, there's a project-based course with some, with some cases uh, led by um, Frank Cespedes and, and Mark Roberge. Mark was the... Um, uh, the head of sales uh, built the sales team at HubSpot early on, um, entrepreneurial sales and marketing. So for years, we got criticism from our alumni entrepreneurs that, you know, you didn't teach us anything about sales when, when we were in business school. And so now we're teaching about sales. It's that is awesome. That, that, like yeah. that, I mean, that is one element where I'm like, how is sales not taught? I mean, that's something that can be taught and learned. And you just go out there, start a company and like, you got to know how to sell. Yeah, and, and Mark and Frank, Mark, of course, um, ran a huge sales team, and, and um, they do some fantastic stuff. They bring in, um, you know, everybody who ever worked for Mark comes in one day, and uh, uh, the MBAs do um, practice interviews. So, you know, how are you going to hire a salesperson? And mm -hmm. so you got real salespeople right across from you, and you get to, you, you get to interview them. And they all in that course do a project where uh, they have to go um, either their own startup idea or more typically somebody else's startup and the students have to structure a project where they go out and acquire customers for, for that startup. 
you know, for some of them, it may be sales calls. For some of them, it may be running, structuring an A-B test and sort of seeing what marketing messages work better. Um, in that same spirit, we've got a course um, called Product Management 101. Uh, you, you interviewed um, um, last summer Julia Austin. So uh, Julia is now leading that course. Um, teaches students the basics of the product management role. Uh, by taking an idea for a software app and moving it from concept all the way through to launch. Um, uh, each team gets something like eight or $10,000, you know, after they've specified the product and figured out what they want to build, they actually go hire developers and supervise the development process. So, um, you know, again, you could do cases where you talk about software development, um, but to actually um, write the specs up and then uh, go hire a developer and have that developer tell you, you know, for $8,000, I can build about a third of what you've got specified here. Tell me what you want me to leave out. That's a pretty powerful That's learning tricky. experience. Yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, so the, the courses just keep going and going, but we, we hit product. Um, Shakar Ghosh, my colleague, um, teaches a course called The Founder's Journey. And um, uh, Shakar's fantastic about thinking about all those people-related issues, sort of the um, who, do you, who do you found with, when do you take the plunge, um, how do you divide responsibility? How do you split the equity uh, when you're failing? Uh, you know, how do you how do you reckon with that um, when the um, investors, when the board wants to kick you out as CEO? Maybe that's a good idea. And how should you think about that? So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a pretty thorough um, preparation, I think, for aspiring entrepreneurs. Which course t touches on like monetization, like you know, figuring out the revenue model? Um, I'd say um, the courses that I mentioned, the um, uh, Busgang's course, Jeff Busgang's course, launching technology ventures and scaling technology ventures, comes up almost everywhere, yeah. right? I mean, for the sales and marketing course too, you've got a really good handle on how you're trying to make money to figure out what the sales and marketing team ought to be doing. And, the and, product and it's, a big, it's a big element of the first year course. You know, we, we actually, in the first year course, spend a lot of time teaching um, the students the basics of lean startup. So. Uh, we put all of those ideas into the required first year course back in 2012. So we've been, we've been teaching every single MBA here, the basics of minimum viable products and pivots and, and how you take a hypothesis about a, a, a business model and, and test it in a way that's, that's uh, really efficient. And I think, you know, the product management side that you also mentioned that Julia teaches, like that's another area that can be taught, but for years, people would graduate in you know, undergrad or from business school and have no concept of figuring out how to go down this you know, journey of building a product and product roadmap and customers and making sure there's a pain that you're solving and you know, just product yeah, market I mean, fit. That, that course may be um, the one I'm most proud of here in terms of the one I had a hand in, in helping launch. I've, I've helped launch 11 courses over um, over the course of my career, uh, most of those in the last 10 years. And, and that's, some, that's some kind of record here. Um, but I had been, uh, if you go back to around 2010, giving this dare to be great speech to anyone here who would listen, any student who'd listen about what a great role for an MBA, the product manager role was, because um, it's analytical, you got to use a lot of soft influence, you know, nobody reports to you. So if you're going to get anything done, it has to be uh, from persuading people analytically or just through sheer force of personality that, that you got a good idea. You know, the, you work with the engineers, but the engineers don't work for you. And, and, uh, and you can really have a huge impact on the success of a technology venture as the product manager. Um, lots of accountability, uh, no, very little formal authority. You know, if the product fails, everybody knows where to point the finger. Um, um, 
but you can't tell a whole, uh, you can't tell very many people exactly what to do. So I was giving that speech about how exciting that was and what good preparation an MBA was for the role. And um, a couple of students came up to me and said, you know, we love the speech, but to get the product manager job, you have to have been a product manager. So you got this catch 22, you can't get the experience without the job and you can't get the job without the experience. And so uh, we, the students had an idea for how to correct that. I said, um, it's the middle of the summer, the semester starts in six weeks, you know, exactly what do you have in mind? Uh, they said, well, we wanna um, teach people the role by giving them an idea for, uh, take, take an idea for a software app and move it from concept all the way through the process to actually building the thing. I said, that's great. Um, and and um, we launched it uh, that uh, six weeks later. Um, I didn't know a great deal about the product management role, but one of those students was a, uh, had been a product, was and still, um, even after graduation, product manager at Google. And so they structured the whole thing. I sort of flew air cover, got them the resources. And if as an educator, I thought they were doing something off track, um, I would reel them in. And uh, was hugely successful. So 14 students who'd never been PM signed up. Um, of the eight that wanted the PM job on the other side, um, they all got it, uh, jobs at Google and TripAdvisor and some fantastic. And we realized we had this hit on our hands. So uh, we've spent the last, that was um, 2012, 13. So we've spent the last five, six years building out that course. And we've now had hundreds of students run through it. It's pretty exciting. Um, and, and it turns out to be not only a great training ground for aspiring product managers, but um, every founder spends a big chunk of their time early on on the product. So it's, it's great training for, uh, for a first time founder. So the question I want to ask you as an extension of that is why is it a good idea for founders, even earlier stage companies, because some of the examples you gave was Google, TripAdvisor, yep. um, and I'll never forget this. So my background is recruiting and I, I would, my, my focus was product managers. Yep. And I would, this always happened to me and I would get the, um, hey, I just got referred to you. You focus on product management. I'm graduating from B school and I want a job in product management. And I would give them the same feedback. I'd be like, sorry, you don't have product management experience. I, I can't help you. Yeah. Um, and, it, and this always happened in Boston and the person would be like, oh, bummer. Okay, well, thanks for your time. And um, literally like two months later, the person would be like mobile product manager at LinkedIn. Yeah. And I, I would see like in Boston, there was just this hesitation to hire raw talent. Like I think Wayfair does and they do an amazing job of that. TripAdvisor does, they do an amazing job. But is it because those companies are at scale and they can bring someone in and kind of groom them? Um, or should earlier stage companies be thinking about hiring, you know, raw talent? Yeah, I think, you know, you can trace a lot of, of um, there, there are two philosophical questions I think um, firms wrestle with when, when they're hiring product managers. One is whether they need to be, have technical background, technical training, be uh, uh, in, in, in the software world, um, have a computer science background. And the second is whether they'll only hire people, as you say, with, with prior experience. And a lot hinges on where the head of product came from. So um, Microsoft and Amazon, for example, will hire people who don't have technical backgrounds as PMs. Um, Google and Facebook and LinkedIn will tend to not do that. And so these firms have, and, and, and uh, eBay and PayPal would hire um, folks who didn't have technical background. And all of these big tech companies have seeded the world with um, a whole bunch of PMs, um, many of whom have grown up to be head of product. And you tend to do in the startup you're in whatever you learned uh, when, when you were in that big company. So what I see is the world splits right down the middle between people who insist on prior experience 
and people who, who and don't, uh, and people who insist on technical background and don't, depending on basically where the head of product got some training. Okay, that's helpful. That, yeah. I guess that makes sense. Um, now, you also- It all like, works, by the way. I mean, you know, um, I mean, Amazon and, and Microsoft have some terrifically well-trained product managers, um, you know, so does Google. So uh, both, approach, both, both approaches work fine. Now, one of the things that um, I've, I've heard about is you're also combining uh, you know, a master's of engineering with an MBA program. Like that's, a, that's new too, right? Yeah, that's brand new. Um, and uh, I said I was uh, very proud of the, of the PM 101 course. Um, this is my new pride and joy. So um, uh, we got the green light from uh, the deans of the business school and the engineering school to explore a joint program, a joint master's degree program between the schools. And um, after some sort of circling around the opportunity, if you, if you go to every um, top university, you'll find some kind of master's level program that blends engineering and management. And so then the question is, uh, Harvard doesn't have one um, and Yale doesn't have one. And those are about the only two um, top schools that you can find that didn't have something. So we were late comers, um, but um, that's good in some regards because it let us take a look at, it, at everything everybody else was doing. And um, there are not too many programs out there that blend engineering and management with the MS and the MBA. Um, MIT has a program that does it, and they've had it for 27 years, a fantastic program, very much focused on integrated logistics. So we wanted to train future leaders of technology ventures. Um, and and uh, if you look at the uh, intersection between what an engineering school is interested in and what increasingly we're interested in an MBA program, it's design. So we, we, we've been teaching design thinking, they've been teaching design thinking. So we knew we wanted to do that in the program and do it um, at um, in, in a um, really rigorous and, and comprehensive way, sort of the best design training you could, you could find. So, um, so the program in two years, it confers a Master of Science in Engineering Science and an MBA. Uh, in the same amount of time it would take to get the regular MBA. And we did that by um, shoehorning in courses. Uh, there's a long break between mid-December and the end of January at, at a lot of schools that aren't a semester system. So we stuck some courses in there and then we start them a month early in August. And, and that way we can, we can accumulate enough credits to satisfy both sets of degree requirements. And so the students, um, they uh, all have an undergraduate um, uh, bachelor's in engineering, bachelor of science in engineering or computer science. And uh, crucially, they've all worked in product development in tech companies for, for at least full time for a couple of years after graduation. So, um, these folks are, are really, um, they're already well prepared and they're gonna get this amazing grounding in, in what it takes to be an entrepreneur, be a leader of a technology venture. Um, they take the entire first year of the MBA, which is where you learn all the basics, uh, again, marketing, finance, um, uh, strategy, and so forth. And then their second year is, is a mix of electives from the engineering school and the business school. Now with the, um, I guess the overarching umbrella of what entrepreneurship is at HBS is this thing called the Rock Center. Yeah. So, so what, what, how did the Rock Center get started and like what's, what's its purpose? Uh, so um, uh, the Rock Center, the Rock and Rock Center is Arthur Rock, um, who uh, uh, one of our alums uh, and uh, uh, one of the early investors in Apple Computer and in Intel. So um, a venture, one, of the, one of the first venture capitalists out in Silicon Valley and, and hugely successful. Uh, gave us a generous gift that um, essentially endows the programming that we do through the center. Um, 
almost every top school will have some kind of entrepreneurship center and, and um, uh, they vary in terms of whether they run both the classroom um, courses uh, and the extracurricular stuff. In this case, we've got, a, here we have a faculty department that, that takes care of the courses. So the focus of the Rock Center is all the extracurricular programming, both for MBAs and for alumni, our alumni who are interested in, in entrepreneurship. So um, for the MBAs, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's the stuff you'd see at, at most schools. Um, there's a new venture competition. We have, entre we have 20 or so entrepreneurs in residence, um, seasoned entrepreneurs who come in and spend a half day a month coaching student teams. Um, we, uh, um, again, courtesy of, the, of, the, of Arthur Rock, um, his generosity, we're able to give a grant um, to most MBAs who want it, um, uh, who, who want to work on a startup idea during the summer, or who go to work in a seed stage firm that can afford something but not uh, essentially a living wage, you know, for an MBA who has to pay the rent for a few months. Um, so, uh, and then, uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, lots of program. We have an accelerator, a rock accelerator here where we, um, we uh, put some teams that have made uh, more progress through the paces, assign mentors to them, give them practice um, with pitching and so forth. Yeah, so all of that on the MBA side. And then a bunch of programming, uh, increasingly for alumni. alumni. That's, um, that's new in the last five years or so. We weren't really doing much to support alumni entrepreneurs, but um, there's lots and lots and lots of them out there. Um, there's something like over the last 10 years, um, 1,100 um, venture capital backed firms that got started by, that have a founder who was a Harvard Business School alum. So it's essentially, it's like 100 per year. Um, and there are 900 in each graduating class, so the, the rate of entrepreneurship is, is um, uh, pretty stunning. Um, seven, and, and, and in that mix, the, in those 1,100, 17 unicorns. So, uh, wow. So, um, yeah, Oscar and, and Cloudflare and um, uh, Blue Apron and Grab, uh, the Southeast Asian ride-sharing company, and on and on like that. So um, we saw five years ago a big opportunity to get out there and, and make sure we were providing whatever support we could to the alumni. And you touched upon this, uh, and I want to talk more about it, the, uh, the, the HBS New Venture Competition. That's like a big anchor of the program, too. And, um, you know, when I was looking at the list of alumni, and I, I could go on and on, but I mean, it was, you know, Birchbox, Brontes, Indeca, Evertrue, ThreadUp, which we talked about, Rent the Runway. Like, these are all companies that are either people know nationally like Birchbox or, you know, locally like a Brontes that was very successful with Eric Paley and, and Mika Rosenblum. So um, why do you think that, that, that anchor, that competition has just been so uh, you know, successful over these, you know, several years? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it comes at the right time in the right place. It's the end of, it's the end of the year. So um, the second year of the MBA program is structured in a way, I mean, now, an MBA um, will, if, if they're startup inclined, they may test an idea in the January of their first year. Um, we've got a boot camp, which I can come back and talk about. Uh, they'll keep working on it. They may spend the entire summer on it. And then in the second year in the classroom, a lot of our courses like the entrepreneurial sales and marketing course that I mentioned, um, the courses have a project. So instead of a final exam, um, you turn in a project and we're delighted when that project involves uh, taking your startup idea and, and pushing it forward. Cause we know students are learning from that. We give feedback on it and so forth. So um, if you put the new venture competition at the end of the year, 
um, you get all these second year teams that have spent essentially the better part of two years really uh, honing an idea, pushing it forward, um, working on every aspect of it. And, and um, many of them are quite far advanced um, through our entrepreneurs and residents. They get feedback along the way. And the competition itself is pretty well structured. Un unlike um, a lot of competitions where it's just judging and here's a winner and loser, um, we bring in a panel. Every, every team will see a panel of five investors and seasoned entrepreneurs and uh, get, uh, do Q&A with the panel and then get formal feedback from the panel. So e even the new venture competition itself is, is structured in a way that, that uh, the teams can take something away and learn from it. Now, what, what about entrepreneurship bootcamp? You mentioned that. So what is, what is that all about? Yeah. So um, uh, this will be, this January will be the third bootcamp. Um, uh, we had um, a few years ago uh, decided that for the students who were really interested in entrepreneurship, we wanted a uh, structured way for them to learn the basics. So um, I put my hand up, volunteered to, to give it a try. Um, and um, it's not done for academic credit. So the students have off from mid-December to, to the end of January, but they come in for a 10-day period and um, um, they've already started working in teams, teams of three or four on an idea that they bring. Um, back in November, we teach them the basics of customer how to do customer discovery interviews so you don't hear what you want to hear, um, how to do some basic prototyping and get feedback on the prototyping, and how to take all of that um, re research and, and turn it into a persona, sort of a target customer, and really start to, to think about the, um, a customer value proposition, sort of what problem are you solving, what's the solution, and, um, and how is it differentiated from what's already out there. So they spend a whole day uh, learning those basics in November, and then they're tasked, uh, in order to get into the boot camp, they gotta go out and do 10 customer interviews, they gotta do five prototype reviews, turn all that in, and then um, the boot camp itself stretches over eight days, and the structure of each day is in the morning, uh, through exercises and cases and outside speakers, we'll, we'll teach them s all of the basic skills and concepts around some topic. So, uh, day one, business model design. Day two, sa early stage sales and marketing. Day three, early stage finance. Day four, team assembly. And um, each afternoon, then they take what they learned in the morning and, and apply it to their venture. Uh, they owe us a couple of slides each evening. The slides are accumulating over the course of the week into a pitch deck. And on the last day of the boot camp, we bring in a panel of that uh, consists of an investor, an entrepreneur, and a faculty member to give the students feedback on the pitches. So this is all, you know, they've only been in the MBA program at this stage three, four months, um, and, uh, and really have learned a ton and, and now have a running start. Um, so we see it's, it's made, I think, a huge difference to us in terms of the quality of the teams that are coming out two years later to have this head start on all this stuff. You and through the years, you've seen so many entrepreneurs, and uh, whether it's through teachings or seeing students building companies, is there a common theme where people get tripped up the most, or is it just? Yeah, there is. You know, it's it's um, I, I, I call it a shot in the dark. I'm writing a book on entrepreneurial failure, um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about how and why where people get tripped up, and. Um, you know, CB Insights does a, um, they do a roundup of, of startup failure postmortems. They're up to, I think, over 300 of them at this stage. And uh, every six months or so, somebody will go through and look for the common themes. And 42% um, of these postmortems, the, the main uh, point of failure is no market need. 
Um, <laughs> basically, we um, no went off and sale. spent a lot of time um, solving a problem nobody cared about. Yeah. And, um, and, and if you think about it, that's um, uh, somewhere between ironic and heartbreaking that, you know, we've had lean startup ideas from Eric Reese and Steve Blank for 10 years. And I don't think you can meet an entrepreneur that can't explain to you what lean startup is, what a minimum viable product is, why it's important. Mm -hmm. And yet what I find is it's a lot of lip service. You still get an awful lot of teams that charge off, um, don't really do the customer discovery, don't figure out, is there a strong unmet need here? Um, do we have an idea that's differentiated? And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think, um, some of the rhetoric of lean startup itself, fail fast, uh, you know, build, measure, learn, really um, sort of pushing entrepreneurs to start building. And so especially if you've got engineers who love to build stuff, uh, you, you, um, you tend to start building way before you should, you know, and the odds are, and once you start building, you get emotionally attached to what you're building, you put all that effort into it, and it's pretty hard to pivot away from it. So, so, um, we see a whole bunch of teams uh, basically making a false start. And the good news is they can pivot because they've learned the basics of a lean startup um, pretty quickly away from the bad idea. Uh, the bad news is they've spent two or three months on the bad idea. They've chewed, chewed up some capital. They've chewed up some time. And, you know, time is the entrepreneur's most precious resource. So if you waste the first three months on a bad idea, um, you really reduce your startup um, success odds. And do you think entrepreneurship is something that people are born with, or do you think it's something that can be taught? Oh, I don't know. Question we can teach a lot. I'll, I'll come back to that. You, you know, the question of whether you're born with it, I, I think is an intriguing one. Um, there've been some scholars who sort of got some roots in biology who've started to, to um, circle around the question of whether there's a genetic predisposition. There's, there's no doubt that there's a genetic predisposition to uh, novelty seeking, right? So, um, if you think that entrepreneurs are people that can handle um, novelty and ambiguity better, um, there are, um, you know, we are wired up, some of us to go seek it. And um, that some of us are wired up to hate the idea of, of being in a situation that's not structured and you don't know what's going to happen next. So if that's real uh, and if those genes are strong, then you might expect there is uh, something like whether there's a gene for entrepreneurship, probably too strong. I mean, if you think of all the entrepreneurs you know and how different their personalities are, it's a pretty big tent. Um, mm -hmm. But but I do think they're probably they're probably a set of personality attributes that make somebody a bad fit for for the career track. Um, but I think there's there's a lot of room, a lot of differences between um, that. And then so that sort of says whether you got a predisposition to do it or not. And then the question is whether you're going to do it successfully. Um, is uh, that's where the learning comes in, and that's where I think. Um, uh, a program like ours or, or um, um, any can, can really give somebody an edge. I mean, the reality is if you're going to build a business, you need to know something about finance, you need to know accounting, you need to know something about um, organizational behavior, how to design an organization, how to hire and fire, all this stuff. It's the stuff we teach in a business school. You know, I, I, um, I have a case on Dropbox and spent some time, um, Drew Houston, the founder, um, MIT uh, computer science grad, not an MBA. And so I asked him, how'd you learn all this stuff to sort of take a, a firm and get it to the stage? And he basically said, well, I went on Amazon um, and I put in marketing, you know, and, and I bought the first <laughs> seven books that came up and I did the same thing for sales and I did the same thing for, so, you know, That's awesome. got himself an MBA the hard way, uh, you know, right. which which is reading all these books. And that's one way to do it. You can have advisors who can sort of fill in the gaps. You can 
self-educate, um, or you can come and spend some time in grad school. Yeah. I, I, I love Drew Houston's story. Like he was a software engineer at bit nine and obviously he's had tremendous success. Yeah. Um, is, I mean, so I, I also think entrepreneurship is something where, you know, you're kind of a product of your environment. And that's why I always ask the question of, you know, what did your parents do for work? Like, not that I care. I'm just always curious as to the foundation of how someone started their entrepreneurial journey. If that was kind of, you know, part of their upbringing. Yeah. Um, um so, um, so my father was a television repairman um, um, by some definition in um, an entrepreneur, I suppose. Um, yeah, you know, if totally. you consider a small business, uh, an entrepreneurial venture, he started it. He was the sole proprietor. Um, he also owned a tropical fish store. Yeah. So um, uh, I grew up um, with uh, my, my mom was a housewife. She worked in the tropical fish store and, and raised mm-hmm. five kids. Um, but it was, it was, uh, pretty natural to have a dad who was around the house, but sort of working on his, his businesses. Um, and, and the fish were his hobby. He was, um, he raised championship guppies. Um, it's, it's a thing you can do, you know, breed the guppies. And, and he was guppy man of the year in North America, three years in a row. So wow. uh, yeah, the fish store was full of all these trophies and ribbons from um, the, the little guppies. So it's so a, it a major cool street cred amongst that, that whole totally like demographic um so i don't know if that turns you uh, you know makes you want to study entrepreneurs but it was a great place um as a kid to be curious i mean i was always either um i was more interested in the fish store than in in the tv store but if you know if i'd had a uh, electrical engineering um uh uh, bias uh, it would have been a great place it was in the days when uh uh, all the TVs had tubes in them that burned out. So the repairman's job was to figure out which tube was out. Uh, so there was all that test equipment in the in the uh, TV repair shop, but the but the um, fish store held much more fascination for me. Sort of weird things growing there. So Tom, lots of successful entrepreneurs would pass through the walls of Harvard Business School, and uh, but you know, like if you look at you know the founders behind Rent the Runway, um, like what were they like as students? Um, you know, I always wonder about if you're in business school and you see other students that are thinking about starting a company, uh, is there a fine difference between entrepreneurs that have this problem that they're just maniacal, that they have to solve it and build a company as the result versus students that may be sitting around thinking of, I need a problem. I got to find a problem, right? So this just seems like that might happen too. But so I'm asking you two questions. I'm sorry, but uh, I'm looking for specific information about the founders of Rent the Runway, but then that, you know, how do you discover the problem and have to solve it? Yeah, so um, uh, Rent the Runway had uh, two co-founders, um, uh, Harvard Business School classmates, good friends, um, Jen Hyman and Jenny Fleiss. Jenny, uh, she's uh, Jenny Fleiss Carter now. Um, and I had worked with uh, Jenny Fleiss uh, all through her second year, coached her. Um, stu- students can um, work on independent projects where they find a, a project and they find a faculty member who will supervise their work. And so I worked um, through the whole year with Jenny. She had a bunch of different ideas. She was moving forward. Uh, I'd heard about the idea for Rent the Runway. Um, um, they got going on that. Um, uh, Jen Hyman had the idea at Thanksgiving of the second year, and they got going in earnest in January, February, uh, went off and did uh, cold called their way to Diane von Furstenberg and uh, uh, wow. pitched, the, uh, pitched an idea to her that um, she showed an interest in originally, but essentially they rent um, women's apparel. Um, uh, early on, um, party, address, party dresses, 
uh, these days, um, all sorts of stuff, you know, sort of for special occasions, but uh, professional women's work apparel uh, by subscription these days. And so the, um, the original pitch was, um, we'll run the back end for you, the designer, you buy the inventory, you get us the customers, we'll take care of everything in the warehouse and, and uh, on the website. Um, the designer didn't like that idea. Uh, they, they didn't want to incur the capital risk and so forth. So they decided they had to go, go in full throttle. Um, and uh, uh, what they did uh, it, toward the end of their MBA year, that was just fantastic. Um, and uh, uh, before I knew what Lean Startup was, so this is um, 2009. Um, uh, they, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> They, they um, rounded up as many dresses as they could find, their own, their friends, um, you know, probably a few that they bought from department stores and, and, and returned, and went over across the river to um, uh, essentially the sororities at Harvard College, uh, who were um, edging up on a big party um, that weekend, and rented the dresses, and, and um, you know, learned from that experience, would women rent a dress, would the ick factor be to, you know, like, this is somebody else's dress that somebody's worn before, ick. Um, and it turned out to not be a problem at all. You know, what styles of dresses, how much would they pay? Would they return the thing? Would it be damaged? Um, and they did um, these um, essentially trials at, at uh, Harvard. And then um, uh, Jen, Jen Hyman was from Harvard College and Jenny was from Yale. So they did the next one at Yale, learned a ton, had the presence of mind to take a camera with them. So they caught the enthusiastic reactions of these young women renting this stuff showed those videos to um, venture capitalists. Um, Bain, Bain Capital um, was the um, first in, uh, and you could just, it was palpable, the excitement, and uh, learned a ton. So um, uh, they, uh, they just were natural um, and uh, uh, super smart in the way they, they played the early stages. So um, you could tell, uh, I knew Jenny well. Um, Jen Hyman is um, the real deal, I and mean, she's positively Jobsian in her ability to sort of through a force of personality and charisma to sort of put out a mesmerizing um, view of the future. And, you know, you listen to her and you're excited and you want to join up. Um, so she brought that. Uh, Jenny brought uh, in incredible ability to execute through the many, many details in the business like this. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been fantastic. And here we are now, nine years later, um, Series D or E or something like that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of capital. I think valued, um, um, according to press reports, at $800 million or something like that. So uh, uh, very exciting. Such a great story. Yeah. And uh, obviously, there's been so many other companies that we could go on and on, like Stitch mm -hmm. Fix just had an IPO. And you've got um, Birchbox, Insight Square, Oscar. I also noticed that uh, Salman Khan from Khan Academy was an HBS grad. I mean, he yep. just, you know, an alum doesn't mean like Jules Pierre from the ground. There's lots of yep. alum that, yeah, yeah. but it's just amazing. Yeah, no, some, some do it um, like the Rent the Runway team or Blue Apron or... Um, so Blue Stitch Apron Fix. was while they're still... Um, uh, Matt Salzberg, he spent uh, like a year in venture capital before yeah. he launched it. And he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't have the idea. Um, he was working on other things here, um, some pretty bad ideas here, uh, you know, that inv involved him essentially going door to door to sign up um, uh, local merchants to loyalty programs, you know, payment and loyalty. There's a business there. It's just a brutally difficult business to execute. Um, a, lot, a, lot, a lot of competition there. Yeah. Too. All right. Well, uh, one more question here. And I know you're not like part of the admissions program at HBS. Mm -hmm. but if you're, if someone asked you the advice, like, how do I get into Harvard Business School? What would you tell that person? 
Uh, so um, in, in the work I've been doing on the MSMBA, I finally, after uh, 21 years on the faculty, had almost no exposure to admissions. Um, I don't know if they don't trust us or if they want to sort of keep us free to do our teaching and research and so forth, but right. um, uh, the typical professor has no contact. Um, but I have, uh, as we've launched this new um, MSMBA, I've gotten to see how the process works. So I think I actually got a pretty good idea. Um, you know, we need folks who are smart, but that's, um, and that's important and that'll be measured through college grades and board scores and so forth. Um, we really are looking for leadership potential. And, and, um, and that can manifest itself in lots of different ways, but we look for evidence that somebody is going to be a leader. Um, and uh, uh, so, so that's probably the most important thing, sort of a pattern, a pattern of experiences that sort of show you, you um, are able and eager to lead. Um, you know, great, important thing for an aspiring entrepreneur, of course. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's all of that. We have, um, Ten percent of the class comes through a program we call Two Plus Two, where we'll admit them as as um, as undergrads uh, with an understanding that they have to go off and spend at least two years um, uh, someplace. You know, go to um, Goldman Sachs, go to go to Google. Um, uh, but in fact, most of those students still end up spending like three or four years. Um, and then uh, the average age at matriculation is twenty-seven. So most of the MBAs here have got five years of work experience. Um, and, and therefore we can, um, from the um, essays they write and from the letters of recommendation we bring in, you can see whether somebody has been leading on the job. So, right, they so have, you're actually looking at yeah. their work experience yeah. and, the and, and, and and college, right? You know, some people in college, you, you just can't stop launching a new organization or sort of taking charge of a club or something like that. Yeah. So all of those things factor in. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, Tom, thanks so much for sharing all the amazing things going on at Harvard yeah. Business School. I mean, uh, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but uh, you know, I just think what you're teaching is so impactful and meaningful. Um, you know, entrepreneurship is obviously the, the foundation of what makes our country great. And uh, to have all the different aspects of what you're teaching is just, uh, it's really extraordinary. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for what you're doing for the Boston community here. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFiz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.